I think the WTA is definitely in a tough spot as to finding itself. And I don't know what the answer is. That's why we have a player council and a CEO and all that stuff. Once the tour catches up with the rest of the world, I think it will be a great great outlet for players and athletes and definitely an avenue that maybe more young girls will pick. everyone, John Wertheim here. Thanks for joining us this week. It's the Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. We are in the dog days of summer, post-Wimbledon, pre-Olympics. We have a special guest this week who's headed to the Rio Games, Coco Vandeweghe, top 40 player. Big serve, big candor. Lots of interesting comments to talk about with us. We caught her before she headed off to a tournament. She was training in L.A. Forgive the audio quality. Again, authenticity trumps audio. She was coming back from practice talking to us on her cell phone. She comes from an athletic family, as many of you know. We obviously know her uncle, Kiki Vandeweghe, former NBA All-Star, current NBA executive. Her grandfather is Ernie Vandeweghe. And little-known fact that we discuss, her mother played Olympic sports, not just in swimming, for which she's well-known, but also then transferred to volleyball. Who knew? Anyway, uh, Coco's great. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. All right, let's bring her in now. Coco Van de Way. I always thought that was one of the great sports puns, especially come French Open time. Right, Jamie? Uh, hey, Coco, how are you? Where are you? Um, I'm actually at home about to go to practice uh, in the next 20 minutes. <laughs> What's the sense of Olympics and tennis right now? I mean, this is, this is the reason I'm asking. There's all this discussion about golf and all the golfers are pulling out for a variety of reasons. Where do you feel the Olympics rank in tennis right now? Well, I mean, I, I think it's all personal feeling of what you think the Olympics means to you. Now, for me, it's probably the biggest event in the world. Um, I grew up with a different sense of what it is to be an athlete. For me, tennis was not a sport that I necessarily watched or even paid attention to growing up. Um, Plus, I had a mother who was a two-time Olympian, so for me, the Olympics is the biggest accolade you could ever have being an athlete. So I did, let, let's let's stop there. I, I didn't realize this about your mom. I knew she was a swimmer. I didn't realize, did she go in volleyball as well? Yeah, 84. That's, ama- that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> how, how did that well, happen? As she, as she says, her dad, uh, when, when we boycotted 80 Olympics, um, she was pretty depressed about that. She was in at school at UCLA, and you know, you train. I can't even, you know, imagine what it feels like to be training four years of your life to compete in the Olympics, and then to have somebody else say, "Okay, the whole United States isn't going." I don't know how you can swallow that pill necessarily, but so she was, as she says, she was pretty depressed and just kind of sat on the beach and didn't really go to school, didn't do anything. And her dad called her one day and said, either you get a job or you go and play another sport. So when she was on the beach, she saw some beach volleyball and then decided, well, I'm going to try out for the volleyball team at UCLA and actually got cut from that team because they wanted her to keep swimming. So she transferred to SC and made the SC team and then made the national team and then made the Olympic team. 
Can I tell you that that may be one of the great underrated stories in sports? How, how <laughs> do more people not know it's about like, that? She went to the Olympics as a swimmer, and then went after the boycott year in in eighty four as a volley, a completely different sport. That uh, that's a pretty remarkable story you've just told. No, it's crazy. I mean, she never. It wasn't even like a for fun sport that she played occasionally on the weekends. I mean, she had never played in her life volleyball. So. So that's even more astonishing that she was able to pick it up so fast and to achieve the highest, you know, highest <laughs> accolade you could in 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 the sport in such a short time. Was eight, was eighty four Flo Hyman? Was that the year? Uh, do you know that? Um, yes. Yes. So your so your mom has a volleyball medal on top of everything else. Yes, but I've actually never seen it, so I can't tell you how cool it looks. That's a really cool story. So what's so what's your second sport? This tennis thing is all well and good, but uh, what's your second Olympic sport after tennis? Oh boy! Um, I mean, the only other sport that I was actually pretty good at was basketball. Um, that I played along with tennis for a very long time, but I kind of did everything as a kid. So I would probably say my second second one would be basketball. So we we have a lot of listeners who are not uh, in the U.S. So I, I think most people here know uh, know your pedigree and know your grandfather and, and know that your uncle Kiki was a NBA All Star. Um, I, I see him at Nets games. What, how's how's he doing? By the way, I'll take a detour. He's actually he's actually working uh, in the NBA? front office of the NBA, so he's working for the organization. Um, and I mean, he's he went from G, he started off as GM for a couple different teams, and then finally got a more secure job behind the desk um, where his job's not on the line constantly from an owner and stuff like that, which is always a nice feeling. I saw his house once. This is a huge digression. We haven't talked tennis yet at all. We're five minutes in, but uh, I saw his house. I saw his house once in Denver that um, his, his wife at the time had remodeled. That was, uh, it was like a super cool old house. Um, I never went to it, but I heard it was, it was, uh, it was really cool. It was made out of uh, I mean, originally it was a old firehouse that they had um, reconstructed, rebuilt, and everything like that. But I never actually saw it in person. I was pretty young when he was still in Denver. You're making me feel old. I remember too at the, at the arena. There's a uh, at the Pepsi Center. There's a hunting lodge. It has like an old West Rocky Mountain feel, and apparently he and his wife designed that as well. Anyway, um, let me ask That's you about to me. I didn't know that. <laughs> you that... know more about. My uncle than I do. <laughs> um, well, I got a serious question though. When, when people say that you, you know, we hear this all the time about you that you come from athletic stock and you come from a family of athletes, and clearly that's the case. But how does that express itself? Like, what, what what does that mean? Do you feel like is it genetics? Is it your grandfather pulling you aside and explaining to you about competition? When people say she comes from an athletic family, what, what does that mean to you? Well, actually, it doesn't mean a whole lot to me. <laughs> I mean, they're just my family, you know. It's just my uncles, my aunts, just my mom, my grandfather. You know, it's, it's these, these people, they're my family members. They're not anything special like icons that they are to maybe some people that have watched them growing up. So, you know, when people, I do, you know, maybe a, a press or something like that, and I can see the look on the on someone's face when they talk about, you know, my grandfather and 
or uh, my uncle Kiki and see like the, the kind of the kid like expression of like the wow factor. I'm like, that's just my uncle Kiki. Like, <laughs> I got nothing for you. <laughs> and but I mean, it was it was really interesting and special as a kid because my grandfather helped raise me, um, and just to have him always kind of uh, my buddy, I would say. Um, you know, the guy that if I was in trouble with my mom, he would, you know, go go and save me, so to say. <laughs> and, you know, when my mom decided she didn't really like me playing basketball too much towards the end because she didn't think that it was the best sport for me as a mom and she liked watching tennis a lot better. <laughs> So she she kind of didn't make herself available to drive me to basketball practices or games or stuff like that. So it became a sort of game with my grandfather and I of getting to the basketball game without my mom knowing. And <laughs> and as a 12, 13-year-old kid, it's like, oh, I'm sneaking, sneaking around my mom. This is so cool. And my grandfather lets me drive his car you know, around to do it and it was just something special to have as a, as a kid. So how, how did you, how did tennis uh, become your sport then? Um, I kind of had a bad season of basketball where, you know, I was, I was playing two sports at the time, two very competitive, uh, at a very competitive level. And, you know, it was, I was missing tennis practices for basketball practices and basketball practices for tennis. And it was just a bad group of girls that just made me feel so unwelcome, and it didn't make me enjoy the sport at all. So that's kind of what forced my hand in the tennis. We're happy to have you. Yeah, we, we, we all we all hate mean girls. We all hate mean girls. It worked. Uh, it, it worked out well for you. Um, so far, yeah. All right, let's take a break. Talk about a different sport. NFL training camps open in two weeks. That's hard to believe, isn't it, Jamie? Uh, we're fired up for another year of NFL football. We'll see if the Peyton Manningless Broncos can do what so few teams have done and repeat as Super Bowl champs. We're excited for the MMQB podcast as well. Everyone should check it out. It's on SI Audible's NFL podcast. Senior writer Don Banks and host Andrew Perloff, you know him from the Dan Patrick Show as well. They're delivering football with insights and lots of laughs. Their buddy Ryan Tribute was not particularly funny, but it was exceptionally well done last week. It featured Ron Rivera and Mike Singletary. Find the Audible's NFL podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or on si.com slash podcasts. So you're, you're I, I just looked, you're, you're number 35 because I, I realize uh, you were coming off, uh, you're coming off a quarterfinal performance at Wimbledon last year. Um, uh-huh. I suspect you're sad a little bit to leave the grass. Uh, yeah. I mean, I had such a great season this year. I won my second WTA title on grass and I made the fourth round at Wimbledon. Um, so, I mean, in another semifinal at another premier tournament. So, I mean, I had a really good, like almost two months stretch on the grass and but I'm happy to be home and getting ready for the hard court season um I mean hard court's my favorite surface so I'm happy to be getting ready to go for the U.S. Open Series in Rio so at 
being ranked where you are at this at this stage in your career, you you enter a major tournament or you go to the Olympics. Take us through the mindset. I mean, are you thinking I'm I'm leaving here with the trophy, darn it, or hey, if I get to the fourth round and that's that's all well and good. I mean, at this stage, where what, what's your mentality going into an event? Well, I think I think what's been the biggest difference in my game, um, uh, uh, you know, aside from everything that I've done in the gym and things like that, because that's a whole other story, is more so what I've um, been able to do on the court, match in and match out, and to be able to beat the good players. Um, consistently. I mean, uh, for a couple of years, it was I'd have a good tournament here and there. I'd be, you know, a top 10 player here and there. And it wasn't very consistent to get high in the rankings. You have to be consistent a lot through uh, the WTA schedule. And I think I've been doing a better job of that. And it kind of shows to where even at the grass courts where I won a tournament and came back the very next week and made semifinal beating a top five player um, in route in uh, Redwanska. So, I mean, that kind of shows the the progression that I've definitely made. When you leave a tournament now, how and you leave without the trophy, are you at a point where you're replaying matches and that sucks and I can't bring myself to watch the final? Or, hey, I got to the second weekend and made some money and did pretty well for myself and... Let's let's look ahead. I mean, what what's sort of you know if you're if you're Serena Williams, it's trophy or bust, and if you're qualifying, you're happy to be there. I, I, I'm I'm just curious, sort of, what's the approach of of someone at your level once you know once you're no longer in the tournament? Well, I I would definitely say I could not watch Wimbledon after I lost. Uh, I didn't watch a single match until probably the men's final. Um, I just couldn't bring myself to watch it. You know, I felt like I still should have been there. Um, I felt, you know, a little bit shortchanged, I think, in what I, I saw my capabilities of going into a tournament. And but I, I think I think if you go into a tournament without believing you can win it, it's sort of you've already lost right, before right. You, you've even stepped foot on the court for your first-round match. And so when it didn't happen where I made – yeah, I lost in the fourth round instead of where I wanted to be at the in the winner's circle. It was hard for me. I got on the first flight home. Um, I basically did everything but made myself watch tennis, and I haven't even looked at any of my film, which I do tend to do eventually, of, you know, study film, watch what I did right, wrong, um, everything like that. So I haven't yet gotten to that point. Um how many days after five or five days, six days after I have, I still haven't gotten to that point of being able to kind of watch myself yet. What do you think of the men's final? I thought it was, um, I thought it was interesting. I thought it would be a little bit different. I caught, I, since I'm in California, I caught the tail end of it because I was still sleeping. Right. Um, so I ca- only watched the last set. And, you know, I thought it to, if you live it, you see the emotion on someone else's uh, face of Andy Murray of winning, and you see that emotion. You can relate to that because you live um, the tennis life. And you know, I think watching any you know any athlete achieve a goal, achieve a dream, is something special. 
The Meds runner-up has a 25-year-old with a booming serve who's improved his athleticism and movement on the court. That sounds like a description uh, that applies to you as well, doesn't it? Except he's older than me. <laughs> the uh, but when you, when you watch when you watch players, male or female, do you do you see your own game in that, or is Milos Raonic, Milos Raonic, and Coco Vandeweghe's Coco Vandeweghe? I mean, are there players that you identify with and take special interest in because their games might reflect yours, or not so much? Uh, no, I don't think so anymore. Um, I think I'm I, I'm a little bit too old to be looking at people and being in awe of them of like wild idol status and everything like that. Um, I, I, I enjoy watching other people's games, especially people that don't play like me. Um, I think it's very uh, different to see. Um, so I can't tell you that I relate to any particular player. I think I more pay attention to um, kind of the out-of-the-norm um, player of that I'm not. Gotcha. What's um, what's your fun factor in your career these days? I mean, is this uh, I've 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 been to Stanford before, and I've been to Cincinnati, and I've been to New York, or is this still? I mean, it, what level is this a job? And at one level, is this I'm, gosh, I'm lucky to be doing this for a living. I, it's definitely both. I mean, you have to take what you do very seriously, and you know, I think it's. You get better at it each and every year. Um, you learn different things about the cities that you're in, of uh, kind of your go-to spots, uh, of where you like to be, hang out. Um, but, you know, sadly, it's a lot of going uh, to these magnificent places and going from hotels to tennis courts, and you kind of miss out on the whole um, whole. Uh, whole idea of these great places that you're in. It's so funny because uh, that, that happens all the you know, people say, oh, you're, you're so lucky you get to go to Rome. Did you see the so-and-so exhibit? And the player says, you don't understand. My existence is, you know, hotel, transport, practice, massage, eat, hotel. Are, are there places where you let yourself get away, though? I try. Um, I try and have a day to myself where I do get to see um, the amazing places that we are, but it doesn't always work out that way. There's, of course, I I would love to see more of some places that I get to go to. Other places, I'd be like, okay, I'm I'm kind of over it. (laughs) I don't get this place or whatever it may be. Um, You know, it's like I we go to Australia and New Zealand and those places, and I'm like, God, I really want to go, you know, see see the Great Barrier Reef or Right, you know, right. go, go to the South Island in New Zealand because they have the mountains and everything, or an off-island in New Zealand, and, and check it out and be a part of the culture. But um, that's kind of the one place that I really haven't been able to get anything done. Other places, I mean, I've gone seen a lot in Rome um, and through Europe a bit. I've done, because you have a little bit more time on your hands there. But other than that, I mean, I'm kind of kind of lame at that. That's something to work on in uh, in 2017. All right, one more break to pay some bills. This year's British Open was one for the history books. Jamie Lasanti, producer, I ask you, does anyone actually read the history books that are so often referenced in sports cliche? I don't think they do. But the British Open was extraordinary. 
Henrik Sendstrom, of course, held off Phil Mickelson with a blistering 8-under-63 to win the first major of his career. This is not like tennis. We have a lot of different major winners in golf. Sean Zock and Jeff Ritter saw this amazing performance. Sean Zock and Jeff Ritter saw this amazing performance up close in person in Scotland, and they have a full report on this week's Golf.com podcast. Find it on iTunes, Stitcher, and now on Spotify. Just search the Golf.com podcast library or visit si.com slash podcasts. What, um, what's the game plan for Rio? I mean, how, how does that work? Uh, how, how's this going to be different from another event? How long can you stay after the competition? Uh, what, what have they told you? Good question. They haven't told me a whole heck of a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of figuring it out as I go. Um, you know, I just got the, the notification of the flights and everything, and we're having a day um, Monday. Uh, I believe that's the first um of uh, going and meeting all the athletes in Houston. So that's the only thing that I'm basically aware of. Other than that, I have no idea what the heck is going on. I'm sure they will tell you soon enough. You you are a um Hopefully. You're you're a very nice mixed doubles player uh apart from the singles. Any sense of yeah. uh, how many events you're going to enter in Rio? Hopefully, um, I, I ha- kind of depends on if uh, the one of the Williams sisters are going to play mixed. So I, it's not really my choice, unfortunately. You'd you'd play mixed if you were asked, though. Yes. Can I ask you? Uh, can I ask you, Maria Sharapova? Uh, yeah, sure. Where Where are you on that? I mean, I think every everybody remembers uh, from your quarterfinal match at Wimbledon last year. You were fairly outspoken. Uh, about some on-court antics, I ask you uh, off-court. It's it seems as though you know we're obviously waiting to hear the appeal. What uh, what's your take on this? Well, last I heard, the appeal got delayed um, or yeah. postponed. I don't I don't know. Yeah, what I think till s- September. Um, so she won't be able to compete in Rio. I mean, my take on it is pretty much. You know, aside from being who she is, if you fail a drug test, um, you know, whether your name's Sharapova or Joe Schmo, it shouldn't really matter. It, if you fail, you fail. It's pretty black and white to me. And you should be suspended uh, to the court's ruling. And that's pretty much my take on it. You know, I would expect kind of if that happened to me, I wouldn't expect special treatment by any means. I had heard from one player that uh, they had felt pressure from the WTA not to uh, speak disparagingly or not to say anything bad. Have you felt that? Have you felt sort of the WTA saying, this is one of our stars, uh, we prefer you not speak negatively? Thanks. They sent out an email to, um, I don't know if they sent it out to all the players, but I got an email of ABC of what we deem is acceptable to say. So, (laughs) yeah, I would say there's definitely been a uh, general consensus from the WTA of what they deem acceptable for the players to say, which I don't think is right for an organization. I think they should allow people to have their own opinions. That's the name of the game, and being an American, that's definitely what I'm entitled to. I was looking at your uh, your prize money, and I think like like most players, 
a huge portion of that comes from how you play at the majors. Yes. How does that impact the how you feel about the tour? I mean, it, it seems to me that the WTA is sort of in a strange place where prize money is, is stronger than ever, and players such as yourself can make a very nice living playing tennis, but so much of that is coming from the slams. How, how do you think that impacts the regular tour events? Well, you know, I think I think you are totally right that it's great at the Grand Slams. If you're doing well in the Grand Slams, you're living nice and comfy. But if, you know, you're that basically means you have to be around top 40 to make a consistent living of not being in debt. <laughs> and if you were to say in, in anyone's field in a normal day-to-day, if I was a doctor and I'm the top 40 doctor in the, in the world, you know, I'm making a good amount of money or, you know, I think in any field necessarily. And I think the WTA is definitely in a tough spot as to finding itself. And I don't know what the answer is. That's why we have a player council and a CEO and all that stuff. Now, whether, uh, what they decide to do, uh, with what, the product we're trying to sell as athletes is kind of up to them. I have, I don't, I don't really have any kind of foothold in it as because I'm not on the council or anything. So I'm just kind of trying to do what's best for me, which um, is trying to perform the best I can. Um, and you know, it's it's once the tour catches up with the rest of the world. Uh, uh, working force, I think it will be a great, great outlet for players and athletes, and definitely an avenue that maybe more young girls will pick um, to kind of have as their job and occupation. And you don't have the mean girls you have in basketball. <laughs> There's plenty of mean girls. It's just you don't have to deal with them as a teammate. <laughs> no, right, but I, but is I mean, it seems to me that's something that a lot of players really like about tennis. That it's all on you. And when you lose in the fourth round of Wimbledon, and you wish you'd done better, that's your burden. But when you have a top forty ranking and win events, uh, that's that's your glory. Yeah, I think I think that makes it really interesting. Uh, and I'm saying you have to take responsibility upon yourself to um, get get the best training um, and nutrition and everything to make sure you're ready um, to compete at the highest level. Like recently I've just implemented um, this new device I heard about from my uncle um, called the Mighty Sat, which I think has helped me in being able to acknowledge what I need in a day-to-day basis for my body to recover. And I think it's helped me tremendously. What, that, that that's a wearable or what's it's a product or it's yeah yeah no it's like a um it's like a reading device um it it reads <clears throat> it reads your heart rate all at the same time it's really easy you just stick it on your finger and it's it also i think the biggest thing is the oxygen saturation um that's really huge it's it's a big number for at least for me as a recovery standpoint, because in training, especially during my off season, I'm in the gym twice a day on the tennis court twice a day, um, having probably a eight hour day, if not more, um, 
of training and to be able to recover and do that again the whole the next day is really important. So let me ask you one more question. You are 24 years old, correct? Correct. Serena Williams just won Wimbledon at 34. You got you got another decade out here? Sure. I mean, I I have no problem playing tennis until I don't want to play anymore. I think that's the special thing about being an athlete um and is, you know, it's it's sports are supposed to be fun. And if that's where I am, if I'm not having fun doing what I'm doing, then I'm not going to do it. I'm going to try and find something else to pursue and, you know, achieve my dreams and whatever else I want to pursue. And I think that's uh, a fortunate aspect of being an athlete. There's always Olympic volleyball. Um <laughs> We we got to we got to we got to make a movie about that. I'm, I'm telling you, your mom. That's that's the most underrated sports story I've heard in a long time. Um, all right, this is great. I uh, I wish you all the luck in Rio. I wish you a lot of uh, oxygen saturation, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll see you out here soon. Great, thank you so much. All right, thanks, Coco. Take care. All right, that does it for this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Thanks for listening. The usual. Thanks and gratitude to our super fantastic producer, Jamie Lasanti, who sits here and smiles and doesn't like to participate, but we're going to work on that. You hear her laughter in the background, no doubt. You can follow me on Twitter at John underscore Wertheim. Subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, your podcast app of choice. Hear the whole SI network at si.com slash podcast. We will do it again next week. If we get the guests I have been promised, it will be, uh, it, this should be an extraordinary conversation. I'm sure it'll be extraordinary even if we have our second choice of guest. But um, anyway, keep the suggestions, comments, and uh, criticism coming. Always appreciated. We will uh, be back next week. Programming note, uh, some of you have asked about tennis and the Rio games. They will be covered on the Bravo Network from the NBC family. Yours truly will be one of the hosts that starts on August the 6th, I've been told. 6th. Check your local listings. Um, In any case, it does it for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again in seven days. Have a good week, everyone. (laughs) 